1867 and all that. Episode 20, Joseph Howe's Non-Revolution. It was late 1836, and Joseph Howe, blustering young journalist and editor, freshly famous and infamous from his libel trial, stood on the hustings in Muscadarbet, a small town just outside Halifax. An election had been called in Nova Scotia, and Joseph Howe was moving from journalism into politics. Elsewhere in British North America, anxious reformers pushed for change. In Lower Canada, Papineau and the Patriot awaited an answer to their 92 resolutions. In Upper Canada, a loyalist coalition under Sir Francis Bond head, the governor, won power, pushing reformers to the side and putting the idea of rebellion into the mind of one William Lyon Mackenzie. But in Nova Scotia, Joseph Howe was already talking about one thing, responsible government. He was a bit fuzzy about exactly how it would work, but he was clear on the principles stripping influence away from the small cadre of office holders and cronies who dominated the system and putting power in the hands of the people's representatives. Howe saw this as the most British demand any colonial could make. On the hustings late in the election, he told the voters, quote, We are not such fools as to believe that the glory and the value of the British Constitution are to be found in the mace which lies on the table in the Commons or the wool sack on which the Lord Chancellor sits. We know that its great cornerstone is responsibility to the people. But then he asked, what kind of government did they have in Nova Scotia? Certainly not this, certainly not responsible government. In England, one vote of the people's representatives turns out a ministry and a new one comes in, which is compelled to shape its policy by the views and wishes of the majority. But in Nova Scotia, with the all-powerful and unmoving Council of Twelve, said Howe, here we may record 500 votes against our ministry, and yet they sit unmoved. In this country, the government is like an ancient Egyptian mummy, wrapped up in narrow and antique prejudices, dead and inanimate, but yet likely to last forever. At least, that's how the political situation seemed to Joseph Howe late in 1836. Howe won that election, and he did so alongside a substantial number of other reformers from across the colony. And so early in 1837, that year of rebellion in the Canadas, a powerful group of reformers stormed the assembly in Nova Scotia with their own demands for political change. They opted not to pick up arms. Instead, they called for other changes, ones that, in the long term, proved much more prescient about how democracy would be made to work in British North America. This week, we're back in Nova Scotia. We're still a decade earlier from where we left things off back in the Canadas, but we will, by the end of next week, catch back up. Nova Scotia wasn't going down the road to rebellion, even though some of Joseph Howe's opponents would try to portray him as just another Papineau or Mackenzie. Instead, Howe and other reformers in Nova Scotia, and also, as we'll see, some moderate Tories too, 
were working their way towards an understanding of how this thing called responsible government could be worked out in a colony without leading to the independence that many British statesmen claimed was its natural outcome. A lot of people have looked back to the rebels of 1837 as the fathers of responsible government. Remember we talked about this in our kind of wrap up episode on the rebellions. But I would say that it's really Nova Scotia that was the better harbinger of the development of democracy across the British Empire. In the Canadas, Republicans tried to follow the democratic path to independence followed everywhere else in the Americas. But in Nova Scotia, they didn't even bother with the Republican option and aimed straight at responsible government right from the first, insisting that Nova Scotians could control their own government and still be loyal. The new cadre of reformers who came to the Nova Scotia Assembly early in 1837 had plans to stir things up. It would be too much to say that they had an organized strategy. This was the late 1830s and strict party discipline was a mirage. And in fact, political parties were still seen by many as disreputable. In the years to follow, reformers would disagree with each other, see each other as potential rivals, fight over the best strategies, and continuously think that their friends might be bought off by the political elite by accepting appointments. But one thing always helps to solidify a group's, or in this case, uh, an emerging party's collective identity, an enemy. And for the reformers in the 1830s, the enemy was the council. Early in 1837, Joseph Howe sparked a conflict with this enemy that shows what he and other reformers thought was at stake. It all sparked off with, wait for it, resolutions. Of course it did, because this is the late 1830s and that is what we do, we pass resolutions. In this case though, there aren't 92, instead we have Joseph Howe's famous 12 resolutions. Count them, 12. Howe made his mark in the assembly right away. It helped that as an editor, he had sat in the gallery for years, officially recording everything that was said and rushing back to his offices to get it all set into type. It might have been a different experience to actually be an assemblyman, but he knew what it was all about. The issue that ostensibly drew forth the resolutions was small but important. A motion to reduce the duration of the assembly from seven years down to four years. In other words, to make elections more common and to give the people a more frequent chance to elect their representatives. So far, so much in line with representative government. But Tories in the assembly thought this went too far and they especially saw it as an attack on the way things had been done and in particular as an attack on the kind of men who had led government and served in that other body, the Council of Twelve. The Council wholeheartedly rejected the bill, decrying what they saw as an insult to themselves. Reformers then needed to decide how they were going to respond. Should they be conciliatory, try to make friends and push the bill through gently? One reformer, John Young, proposed two conciliatory resolutions to stave off an open conflict with the council so early in the session. And that is when Joseph Howe stepped forward. He was having none of it. Howe could be affable and jovial. He could make friends with the best of them. But this time, he supplanted Young's resolutions with 12 resolutions of his own. 
12 resolutions that are a window onto the political soul of reformers in the late 1830s Nova Scotia. Not surprisingly, what we see closely resembles, with a few local differences, Canadian complaints about government. At the centre of everything was the unjust monopoly of power by a small and unrepresentative clique. In Upper Canada, it had been the family compact. In Lower Canada, the chateau clique or bureaucrat. In Nova Scotia, this was the Council of Twelve. Remember, in Nova Scotia, the executive and legislative councils were actually joined together as one single body, and Howe's resolutions attacked them from all angles. What was wrong with the council? Well, for starters, he said, it was out of touch, composed of wealthy men handpicked by the governor in Halifax. Just look at the council itself, the resolutions asserted. Five of its 12 members all came from one interlinked family interest. It was dominated by Anglicans, and the bishop himself sat on the council. It underrepresented Presbyterians. There was only a single Catholic, and there wasn't even one Methodist or Baptist on the council. And, how asserted, this was really just the tip of the pyramid in a system of favoritism that spread across the colony. This institutionalized favoritism created, how said, invidious distinctions and jealous discontent in the minds of large numbers of His Majesty's loyal subjects. It didn't help that the Chief Justice sat on the council, which made it look as if he was not the arbiter of justice, but the head of a political party. It mostly, though, came down to money. Reformers all across British North America hated expensive government. They wanted to cut costs. And they felt this way because it seemed to them that the fees and taxes collected simply went to paying an elite that was out of touch and unrepresentative. How and other reformers complained about the various fees that judges charged in these years to supplement their salaries. They complained that the council controlled various ways of raising revenue across the colony from land taxes to duties that came in from coal mining in Cape Breton. All of this was out of the control of the assembly out of the control of the people's representatives. Now, if this could seem petty or too much like penny-pinching, Howe linked all of these concerns to his broader wish and, he said, Nova Scotians' belief in British liberty and justice. And he went back to his election stump speech. In England, the people, by one vote of their representatives, can change the ministry. Not so in Nova Scotia. So, what should be done? Howe's 12 resolutions ended with a remedy for these grievances. Either grant us an elected legislative council, he resolved, remember that had been the demand of the Patriot in Lower Canada, or reorganize the government to, quote, ensure responsibility to the commons and confer upon the people of this province what they value above all other possessions, the blessings of the British Constitution. Eighteen thirty-seven was a year of fomenting rebellion in British North America. So why didn't Nova Scotia follow this path? Joseph Howe certainly worried that he would be seen as another Papineau, 
and his most strident opponents suggested he was just like the disloyal Lower Canadian. But Howe and the other Nova Scotian reformers used different tactics. For starters, when some in the assembly quibbled with the exact wording of the resolutions, Howe negotiated. He was open to some changes. And then, instead of pushing forward heedless of the costs, Howe actually temporarily rescinded his resolutions in order to get other business done. He withdrew them and instead pushed to create a committee of the assembly which would look into the whole matter. While that was getting set in motion, the assembly was able to pass all of its financial bills for the season, all of its regular business. Unlike in Lower Canada, Howe and the reformers were going to make sure that all of the business of the assembly was done. They wanted it clear that these disputes shouldn't hurt the people. Roads would be built, laws modified. And then, when that was settled, the committee came back with essentially the same resolutions. The assembly supported the 12 resolutions by a huge majority and promptly sent off an address to London. And that was how loyal reform was done in 1837. The real question in 1837 was, how would the Crown respond? All through the summer, Lower Canada descended into political turmoil. And then in the autumn, outright rebellion broke out. Through it all, Nova Scotian reformers wondered if this would help or hurt them. How would London respond to reformers in a year of rebellion? The answer for the then governor of Nova Scotia, Colin Campbell, was not a pleasant one. He was going to be forced to make some changes. Colin Campbell, Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, was a military man from a military family in the Scottish Highlands. He came to politics and the colonial service after spending his whole life in service and, in his case, this largely meant in service with the most famous military figure of the era, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, victor over Napoleon at Waterloo, and then twice British Prime Minister. It paid to have served Wellington, and plenty of his former officers rose through the ranks of government in these years. When Campbell came to Nova Scotia as governor, he did his best to make friends. Certainly many in Halifax High Society thought he was marvellous. There were dances, balls, parties. But although Campbell was initially quite friendly with Joseph Howe, this didn't mean that there weren't going to be problems. Campbell didn't like to have his honour or his ego tarnished. He didn't like to change his mind or to be forced into doing something by an opponent. And by late in 1837, Governor Campbell was being forced into action. In the first instance, it was by the British colonial secretary, Lord Glenelg, who had decided that while he would not concede to some of the Assembly's requests, the 12 resolutions on the whole seemed to have some merit and deserved some reasoned response. London ordered Campbell to divide up the Council of Twelve into two separate executives. It didn't make sense to have the same small body act as both legislative and executive council, so let's split it in two. And then let's have some assemblymen on the executive council. 
This should, London hoped, give something to the ambitious men in the assembly. Let them have posts as councillors and see if this satisfied them. Campbell started negotiations with Howe and others about what was to be done. And then, when he announced the new executive council in early 1838, Campbell did have some good names on it, though it included only one single reformer, a man named Herbert Huntington. Joseph Howe was skeptical about whether splitting the council into an executive and legislative council really mattered. As he put it, it was like, quote, splitting a rotten orange in two in order to improve its flavor. But Howe was more optimistic about other instructions that came from the colonial office. Campbell had published this dispatch from London when he announced the new councils, and here Howe found room for hope. Although the colonial secretary Lord Glenelg hadn't conceded on all of the 12 resolutions, it certainly seemed like he was agreeing with reformers on many points. London instructed Campbell to avoid the appearance of favoritism towards the Church of England. He was also to make sure not more than one person from any commercial interest sat on the council. He was to get the Chief Justice off the council so as not to tinge justice in the colony with partisan considerations, and what's more, he was to give the assembly more control over public revenue. It seemed, to Howe at least, like a major victory. But this was, of course, nothing like responsible government. Campbell opened up his executive. London ordered him to pay attention to the complaints of Nova Scotians about the unrepresentativeness of the executive. But even the new assemblyman, who now sat on the council on the executive, didn't see their role as would a modern cabinet. They weren't official go-betweens from the assembly to the council. They sat on the council, they thought, because they deserved to be there. They sat there as important figures, representing the province, not a party. And they told their fellow assemblymen that while they were happy to relay concerns from the assembly to the executive, they wouldn't be controlled by any faction in the assembly itself. And this last part really matters and gets to the heart of one of the main arguments against responsible government in these years. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to assume that responsible government was going to happen and going to come all along, and to present its opponents as anti-democrats, looking out only for a small clique. But in reality, opponents of responsible government, or at least those who didn't advocate it in all measures, had their own reasoned and thoughtful arguments. And the main complaint had to do with the distrust of political parties and factions. Those who pushed for responsible government could seem selfish and narrowly partisan. They seemed to want to get hold of government patronage and distribute it to only their supporters. And there was a lot of truth in this criticism. The spoils system of patronage did in fact come out of responsible government. Opponents of responsible government also worried about the loss of independence, the way in which responsible government could lead to a group or party, or a faction as it was often called, unreasonably controlling the minds and actions of representatives. Surely, the ideal representative was the independent actor, someone informed by their party affiliation and what they knew of local concerns, but also someone who used their own judgment. This was a kind of Edmund Burke critique of the representative system of government, and it still has power today. 
where we wonder just how bound an MP should be to their constituents or their party, or just how much independent judgment they should follow. And it was there in the 1830s and 1840s, as people in British North America debated whether responsible government would make government more bound to a single political party at any one time. But Nova Scotia in 1838 certainly did not yet have a responsible government. Later in that year, Campbell actually removed Huntington, the only reformer from the council, and increased the representation of the Church of England on the council. How could this be reform, Howe asked? There was also the matter of expenses and salaries, which again, Howe thought Governor Campbell was doing a runaround on the assembly, favoring a small clique. The assembly sent off another address to the Queen, certain that the colonial secretary in London would see the reason of the assembly's claims. But when a reply finally came early in January 1839, the colonial secretary, Lord Glenelg, responded that he thought Governor Campbell had gone quite far enough in making the council responsible to the assembly, and all of the governor's decisions about money would also stand. Howe was crushed as well as angry, and it was into this context, only a couple of months later, that Lord Durham's report on the crisis in the Canadas arrived in British North America. You know, that report which called for Britain to have faith in its colonial assemblies, to understand that these representatives really could be trusted to guide their own affairs, that government in the Americas really could and should be controlled by representatives of the majority in that population. To Howe, it was a gift from the gods. It was exactly what he had been looking for. He had been extolling the virtues of the British Constitution for years. He had even been talking about responsible government, but what he meant exactly by this had not always been clear. Still, from this point forward, Howe was a convert. He wanted what Durham advocated. He wanted responsible government. And when Lord John Russell rose in British Parliament that June to argue that Lord Durham was wrong, well, then Joseph Howe was bound to reply, and reply he did. Russell had argued, as we've noted elsewhere when talking about the Canadas, that responsible government just wasn't possible in the colony. Certainly a colonial governor should always seek to govern with the consent of the assembly and the people, but there were bound to be cases where the governor had to go his own way. This would of course happen in the matter of foreign affairs and war, what if a colonial assembly in New Brunswick, for example, opted to start a conflict along the border with the Americans? Clearly the government needed leeway to act on its own. It could happen with trade, and it could even happen on some local matter like the administration of justice. In August, Russell once again became colonial secretary, and his speech from that June suddenly carried even more weight. And so, in September of 1839, Joseph set about to write a series of four open letters to Russell on the topic of responsible government. Howe felt that they were so important he also had them bound together as a pamphlet and published it for everyone in British North America to read. Howe was on a crusade, and these letters would be his holy book, his very own Durham Report. And they make for great reading, even today. Joseph Howe took apart Lord Russell's dismissal of responsible government. He started off professing his loyalty and his love of all things British. In asking for responsible government, he insisted he and other reformers really wanted British justice and liberty. 
The idea that this was one step on the way to separation was just ludicrous. Quote, why should we desire a severance of old ties that are more honorable than any new ones we can form, he wrote. Until it can be shown that there are forms of government combining stronger executive power with more of individual liberty, offering nobler incitements to honorable ambition and more security to unaspiring ease and humble industry, why should it be taken for granted, either by our friends in England or our enemies elsewhere, that we are panting for new experiments, or disposed to repudiate and cast aside the principles of that excellent constitution cemented by the blood and the long experience of our fathers, and upon which the vigorous energies of our brethren, driven to apply new principles to a field of boundless resources, have failed to improve. Pretty good stuff. The second letter was even better. Here, Howe asked Russell to imagine if the situation were reversed. Imagine a world where someone like Howe showed up in Liverpool with the job of governing the city according to the kind of irresponsible colonial system now being defended in the Americas. As a new governor, Howe would know almost no one in Liverpool. He'd be ignorant of the issues of local conflicts and needs. And yet, he would be responsible for everything. So what would he do? He would have to turn to his local advisors, his council, his executive. And yet, if the system in this imaginary Liverpool was like that in British North America, these advisors would come from a closed network of wealthy people out of touch with the whole population, acting in their own interests and advocating for their friends. And what's more, the council would have no responsibility they could serve for life and could always blame the governor if anything went wrong. How long would the people of Liverpool put up with such a system? Howe assured Russell that there was no need to see a conflict between the interests of the colony, governed in a responsible fashion, and the imperial home. Each could simply stay in its own preserve, focusing on those matters that were either local or imperial. A responsible system would leave to London questions of trade and war and foreign policy. A colonial, responsible government wouldn't interfere because these wouldn't be in its jurisdiction. And by the way, if you're listening to this and thinking, hey, this sounds a lot like the way we talk about differences between federal and provincial responsibilities in the Canada today, well, then you are right. This is exactly what Howe and other advocates of responsible government were calling for. It wasn't so much national independence as it was provincial jurisdiction inside this bigger thing called the British Empire. A certain strand of Canadian nationalist is always going around looking for just the moment when Canada asserted its own sovereignty. But the trick is, they're constantly judging the past by the standards of the present, which those in the past did not share. Joseph Howe wanted Nova Scotians to be in charge of their own local affairs but he equally wanted to be a part of the British Empire. All through 1839, 
Joseph Howe waited for the big news that his arguments had pushed Russell on the way to reform. He knew that Governor Campbell wasn't going to do anything on his own. A group of reformer delegates traveled to London that year to lobby for change, and Campbell arranged to send two members of the council to argue against them. Campbell thought Durham's plan, and so Howe's plan too, was just absurd. Late in 1839, Howe professed to see some sign of hope, not from Governor Campbell in Nova Scotia, but from a dispatch published in the Canada's. You'll remember that when Charles Thompson, the man who became Lord Sydenham, came to the Canada's, he received some pretty precise and extensive instructions. Thompson was tasked with joining the two Canada's together and also with figuring out how to govern the new colony and what the heck to do with all of these demands for responsible government. Russell sent Thompson two dispatches in October that were later published for all to read. And while Russell was pretty clear in his 14th October dispatch that there was not to be responsible government, he sent another one two days later that Joseph Howe read and thought, hey, this changes everything. For in that dispatch, Russell said that the whole way that the local executive councils were chosen needed to change. Until this point, the practice had been to essentially appoint people for life. The exact phrasing talked about serving at the pleasure of the crown. But in reality, many officials secured positions for themselves indefinitely. This now had to change. Not for judges or just those holding what we might think of today as civil service jobs. But if you were holding a job that was tied to the carrying out of public policy, then the governor could appoint someone new if this seemed to be what was good for public policy. For how this was fantastic news. He thought of it almost as a new constitution. Howe continued to say publicly that Governor Campbell was just getting bad advice. It wasn't that Campbell was against reform. He was just surrounded by this nepotistic elite group of self-promoters who served on the council. Now, Russell's dispatch seemed to say no more. The council could be changed at any moment. In early February of 1840, Joseph Howe and the reformers in the assembly leapt at the chance to build on this. When the assembly reconvened, they passed a resolution saying that the current executive council did not possess the confidence of the assembly, and so it had to change. What's more, one of Campbell's trusted members of the council, James Boyle Uniaki, had read Russell's dispatch too, and he had come to the same conclusion as Joseph Howe. Although the two men had battled it out on the assembly floor many times before, now they stood together. Uniaki resigned from the executive, claiming that he couldn't in good conscience sit on a body that had been so roundly condemned by the assembly, by the representatives of the people. So Uniaki, like Howe, thought that Russell's dispatch meant an entirely new kind of constitution for Nova Scotia. The trick was that it didn't. At least, that wasn't what Lord John Russell had intended. So now, what were they to do? When the governor refused to budge, the assembly took the ultimate step in personal insult. First, they settled all the important business of the assembly. These men were ever loyal reformers. Let's make sure no one in our colony suffers from what we are about to do. But once this business was out of the way, they passed a resolution demanding that Governor Campbell be recalled. If he wouldn't interpret Russell's dispatch in the way that men like Howe and Uniaki interpreted it, then he had to go. And that was how things stood at the end of 1840. 
with an obstreperous assembly, newly confident, demanding the governor's recall, all based on the misinterpretation of a dispatch from the colonial secretary who certainly hadn't meant for things to go down this road. So what to do next? Well, if you're in London and it's 1840, apparently you do one thing. You turn to the guy who seems to be sorting things out in the Canadas, Governor General of British North America, Charles Thompson, soon to be Lord Sydenham. Maybe he could sort out this whole Nova Scotia business. Russell ordered Thompson to the Maritimes on a kind of summer work vacation. And when he arrived, the locals would greet him with true Nova Scotian hospitality, everyone convinced that Thompson was really their friend and sure to side with them. Thompson himself, of course, always had his own plan. Thanks for listening this week to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, remember to subscribe if you haven't already and to leave a five-star review. Let me know what you think. You can get in touch via the podcast website, www.1867allthat.com. Next week, we're moving towards a conclusion in Nova Scotia. We're going to zoom through a number of years as Howe and the newly converted Uniaki meet Thompson and then try to sort out this whole governing business under the new system that Thompson will suggest. And as we move into the 1840s, events in Britain and the wider empire are going to come to matter even more. In particular, the rise of this new economic theory of free trade. For years, liberal economic thinking had been slowly gaining ground in British politics, and by the mid-1840s, its converts were going to transform the whole economy of the empire. And when Britain's political class converted to free trade thinking, Joseph Howe was going to find out that this new economic idea was also going to change the way they thought about their empire too. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. Sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, and all with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.